0: Identity and how we describe ourselves to others is complex. For example, when somebody asks you, what do you do for work? It can be really hard to give a straight answer. I know I struggle with that. Today, we'll dive in with Christina Wallace about why you should describe yourself as a Venn diagram to balance passion and pursuits. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. What do you want for it?
1: Not what your parents want or your partner wants or your college friends want or your LinkedIn followers want. What do you want? And if you wanna go be a pro mountain biker, go do it, man. If the whole thing fails, you still have that degree. You can always come back to and spin some story about a sabbatical.
0: I'm so grateful that you are here with me today, and I'm really excited about today's podcast because I often struggle with describing what I do for work because I do so many different things. Whenever people ask me for a bio or whenever they ask me about my school background, I like having diversity in my education and in my interests, but that can be confusing for some people. So when I first heard of Christina Wallace and her work, and book The Portfolio Life, How to Future-Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card. I was excited to get words for the things that I've been trying to describe. One of the many circles in my Venn diagram has to do with plant-based nutrition and nutrition in general. I've spent a lot of time thinking about how I can optimize my health for both performance and for longevity, and that includes a plant-based lifestyle. And along with plant-based lifestyles come the questions of supplements. What supplements do you take, Sonia? That's what everybody wants to know. While there are recommended supplements for people who eat an exclusive plant-based diet, the supplement that I take the most and every single day is a multivitamin. That's where Prevenex comes in. They make pharmaceutical-grade supplements that are tested and have the highest quality ingredients for every vitamin that you could take. For example, there are many different types of vitamin B12, and which one is the most absorbable? Well, Previnex thinks about that for every single ingredient in their multivitamin. I had the CEO and founder on the podcast, David Block, because he used to be a research analyst for supplement companies in general. And he demystified a lot of my questions around what is actually in supplements and are they regulated? And that was something that was concerning to me whenever I would take supplements. I didn't actually know what was in them because they weren't regulated. So when I take the Prevenex multivitamin, I know what I'm getting whenever I am putting that into my body, and what I'm getting is energy, and I'm getting insurance that if I am missing something in my diet by mistake, that it is going to be covered. A lot of people go and just buy the cheapest multivitamin they can find, or maybe even people just buy ones because that's what their friends take. I encourage you to dig a little bit deeper to make sure that you are benefiting from the supplements that you are taking. So that is why I highly recommend Prevenex. Go to Prevanex.com. You can use my code SONYA15 to get 15% off your first order. I take the multivitamin, and the Immune Health Plus is something that is in my cupboard right now because my son is in preschool, which is a Petri dish for germs, and my daughter is also getting all the sicknesses that he has. And I want to make sure that I can stay as healthy as possible so that I can still pursue things in my life and take care of them. So check out Previnex.com, that is P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com and use the code SONYA15 and that is also linked up in the show notes. So let's get back to Christina Wallace. How can we redefine ourselves beyond our professional roles? And if you have multiple professional roles like I do, how do you describe yourself? Well, Christina Wallace is a true trailblazer in the world of career and life design. She's a Harvard senior lecturer. And as I mentioned, she's the author of the book, The Portfolio Life how to future-proof your career, avoid burnout, and build a life bigger than your business card. I highly recommend that you pick up this book. In this conversation, we got into the nitty-gritty of how diversifying your skills and experiences can give you a unique edge in navigating your career. And she calls this associative thinking, and this was my key takeaway from learning from Christina, is that having a diverse skill set actually helps you bring together broader concepts in a way that someone else might not be able to. The podcast has certainly helped me do that. Having degrees in multiple fields has helped me do that. So this associative thinking part of having multiple skills and experiences is really key. And especially in a world of AI, I think that this is going to be key moving forward. Christina revealed how taking solo trips helped her find comfort in her own skin, separate from her achievements and what she could offer to others. Plus, we talked about the power of saying yes to unexpected opportunities, drawing from Christina's own life-changing experience of jetting off to a new country with someone she had just met. The impact of that bold move, it's been nothing short of transformative for her as an entrepreneur, parent, and creative soul. Think about the times in your life when you have said yes to something unexpected and it has changed your life. For me, saying yes to somebody who invited me to go mountain biking, saying yes to going to that first mountain bike race, those things have changed the trajectory of my life. Throughout our conversation, Christina dropped some serious wisdom about embracing a portfolio life. She shared practical steps for seeing yourself beyond your job, designing a business model for your life, and crafting a portfolio that defies the conventional notion of work life balance. So, if you're ready to future proof your career and build a life that's as diverse, dynamic, and meaningful as you are, this episode is your roadmap. Join me and Christina as we challenge the status quo and inspire you to create a life that transcends your business card. We'll show you how to turn the F word, haha, failure, into a powerful tool for success. How to find your personal Venn diagram and build your very own board of directors to guide you on your own unique journey. And before we get started, please don't forget to hit that follow button if you are enjoying this podcast as we have many episodes and many inspiring guests that we don't want you to miss because these messages are transformative in our personal lives and in the world in general. And if you really like the show, please leave us that five-star rating as it helps the show find others. And it's the best way that, and you're recommending the show to other people to help the show grow. And with that, let's dive right in with Christina Wallace. Christina, I'm so excited to have you on the show because whenever I read your book, I was like, this woman is able to describe my life. <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing that. That's always reassuring. <laughs> yeah, I think many of us can identify with doing a lot of different things in our lives. And not knowing how to describe ourselves when somebody comes up to you and asks you, what do you do for work? I know that for me, I, I kind of freeze when people ask me that because mm-hmm. I do so many different things that I don't even know what to lead with. So like, what advice do you have for people who do lots of different <laughs> things when somebody asks them that question?
1: Well, number one, have an answer prepared in advance, right? You know, this is something you're going to get asked. So sit down and put a little thought into it rather than wait for that moment to be frozen. I, I faced this too and that's where i really came up with this idea of calling myself a human venn diagram. everyone seems to laugh when they hear it and but they immediately understand what i mean by it, right? it's like, oh, you do you do many things. they intersect in interesting ways. like, okay, i got that. so it gives you that that sense of my interdisciplinarity, that intentionality in doing that and you know sometimes i'll throw in there my venn diagram it has you know uh, the arts technology business so i'm giving you some of the fields that i work in but i'm not telling you my job titles from my resume i'm not talking you through all of the bullet points because depending on what you're interested in we could go out a very different path in that conversation so i'm giving you just enough to understand my vibe where I play and allow you to ask some follow-up questions. And then we can take the conversation from there. And that would be my advice to anyone who lives in this multiplicity of lives.
0: This is a bit of an off-topic question, but I was at this uh, International Positive Psychology Association World Congress a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And a bit about me, I'm a professional mountain biker. I have my master's degree in electrical engineering. I've been national sales and marketing manager. I write, like I do lots of things, right? So, I'm at this conference and and people ask me like, well, what do you do? And I also coach. So I would think like, well what, well, what do I really lead with here? Do I lead with the coaching? Do I lead with the professional athlete? And it's interesting because people get impressed, quote, impressed by what mm-hmm. you do. And I don't like leading with the things that are impressive because I don't want it to be about that. I want it to be about mm-hmm. this identity piece. So if you don't want to talk about necessarily your accolades, but you want people to give you time of day. Cause I noticed it. If I, I, I experimented with different leading with different things like, Oh, I'm a podcaster. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, I'm a coach. And mm-hmm. people would light up, um, only whenever I told them something that they found impressive, which is usually like the athlete side of things. So mm-hmm. for building connection with people, you know, how do you say what you do or who you are? Um, but have them not over-index on the accomplishment part.
1: This one is tricky, right? Because, uh, you know, and, and I don't, blame people they're they're looking for an easy way to evaluate is this person worth an hour of my time or 5 more minutes of my time right they're they're looking for that quick signal of what they should invest in you and and it's because they're constantly meeting new people right it's not because we're shallow it's it's because we have to have some sort of signal to separate out from the noise and so there's there's always this tension i have often found That when I lead with the part of me that is different from the room that I'm in, that it often will spark this, oh, okay, there's something very different going on here, and let's have a conversation. Now, that different thing might be impressive. I worked at the Metropolitan Opera. Oh, I recognize that. That's impressive. Or that different thing might just be your room of artists, and I'm going to talk about the fact that I have a math major. And you're like, okay, I don't entirely understand that, but like, tell me more. Even though I also am an artist, I also am a theater person and a musician, I could lead with what makes me the same. I find that leading with what makes me different in that Venn diagram often at least will give them that signal, okay, I want to know more. And it's not about impressing them. It's just literally earning the right to have a conversation, that follow-up. So If you think the pro athlete piece is the piece that gets them to stop in their tracks and say, okay, so what are you doing here? (laughs) Then lead with that. It doesn't mean that that's the only part of you that's interesting. It's just the part that stands out. And standing out is what allows you to have their focus for a period of time. I think go with that.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice because I think a lot of us will try and look for similarities in people that we're meeting to try to be like, hey, I'm like you. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't always make you stand out in a way that makes someone want to engage with you more.
1: Mm -hmm. And it also obviously is going to be based on context. If you're at a conference where everyone probably has similar interests, I would absolutely lead with what's different about you because they've just met a hundred potential coaches or podcasters or or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a space where you might not fit in very well and you're trying to signal to them, no, I belong here then maybe you lead with what makes you the same, right? So if I'm showing up to Broadway uh, networking situation and I am a, you know, by day job, I'm a professor of business, (laughs) I'm probably going to lead with, I recently invested in a Tony winning musical of, you know, production of of Parade because that's going to give them a, okay, you do belong here. You're not someone who like wandered in to try to find the bathrooms, But then I'm quickly going to follow up with, but my day job is teaching entrepreneurship. And usually I invest in tech startups because then again, it gives you the what makes me different.
0: So something that we hear about a lot and something I think about is your worth, your self-worth is separate from Mm -hmm. your work. It's separate from Mm -hmm. your achievements. And that can be very hard to decouple, especially with what we just talked about, how if people are actually extra interested in you because of this work that you do or these achievements. So how how do you work on separating those things?
1: That one is tough. I mean, I would start with a lot of therapy. <laughs> I'm totally serious. <laughs> I, I've, I've had years of therapy and a fair amount of, of journaling and self-reflection. You know, one of the reasons I started traveling by myself in my 20s, to be honest, was to learn to sit still in the silence of my own head, of my own thoughts, and in doing that, really faced for the first time that I did not see my value separate from what I could do, whether that was achievements or what I could do for other people. I thought, you know, if I'm out here not doing anything, I'm just traveling, i'm I'm not contributing in any way. Like, what am I? And why would anyone want to meet me and and why would you want to be my friend and and all of that, right? it it sort of absent that box of achievement, I really, had to face. Okay, well, who am I separate from that? And it gave me a lot of opportunities to realize I'm Resilient. <laughs> when I go out and travel by myself without an itinerary, without plans, and I figure it out on the go, I'm funny. I can make friends. I can crack jokes and and be you know not just like the clown, but I can find the humor in situations. I am a good friend. Like I show up for people, right? And you start to see these characteristics of who you are that have nothing to do with your grades or your work or your salary. And I think it's nice to remind yourself that you're a person who has a lot of value in the world, and only a piece of it is related to what you can do for money.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like identifying with your strengths, like you're talking about resilience and your humor Mm -hmm. and your connection, and and also what your values are is what underlies all the things that you Mm -hmm. do. For sure. And
1: some people are really in touch with those things. And some of us kind of make it all the way through the race of school and college and don't really have to sit and think about it until the moment where you say, I don't think I'm living the life I want to be living, and how do I fix that? Well, it starts with figuring out, well, what do you want? Who are you? What do you care about? What do
0: you value? And what do you want? Yeah, I think this is a good segue into the four pillars in your book. Mm. Can you elaborate on those? Sure. So these four pillars
1: uh, basically you know, prop up what I call the portfolio life, the the title of the book. And it starts with identity because a lot of the limitations I hear when I'm coaching folks, when I'm talking with friends about, you know, what, what you see yourself capable of doing starts from how you see yourself, right? That this is not so much a limitation of other people won't give you the chance to try something new. Is that you have told yourself, oh, that's not who I am. And we see this so clearly in, you know, people who grow up being told, oh, you're not a math person, oh, you're not creative, you're not athletic. I was told, you're not athletic. And so I just I believed it for years. I believed it until finally as an adult, I thought, well, why don't I try and let's see if I'm not athletic. <laughs> Right? And, and so a lot of this starts with the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Who are you? How do you show up in the world? And what are you granting yourself permission to do as a result of that identity? And separating that identity from your job is the first step. Second, we get into optionality. And this is a result of really understanding that identity piece. There's an incredible illustration that I was able to reproduce in the book created by Tim Urban. He's a blogs and posts on the internet under Wait But Why. And it's this kind of meandering chart of paths that your life could take, right? And and I think he points out that many of us look backward and say, oh, I could have been anything. I could have been an astronaut. I could have been an MBA basketball player, but I made choices, I closed doors, and now I am what I am and all I have is, you know, the straight line ahead of me. And what I love about this drawing is he shows you have just as many doors ahead of you as you had behind you. But you have to see them. You have to be aware that you can make different choices. So, recognizing that as a result of you are many things, that means you can do many things. And that opens up the possibilities of what you even consider for your life. And I don't just mean from a work point of view, I mean from hobbies and relationships and communities, all of the pieces that make up your life. You have a lot of options which becomes super helpful as we get to pillar three, which is diversification. The only way to future-proof in a world that is constantly being disrupted, as we are faced with right now, is to diversify. We do this with our financial portfolio all the time. We understand you don't put all your eggs in one basket. And what we're taught with our finances is you not only diversify, you you build out that allocation according to the risk and reward that you're looking for for that period of your life. When you're younger, you can put more risk. You have more stocks and less cash. When you're older, you might want to rebalance that to be a little bit less risky. This is true with your life as well, that when you diversify across income streams, networks, skill sets, industries, it gives you that flexibility, which is the last pillar, to be able to pivot when the industry changes, when the world changes, when you change, when what you need changes. So think about that from diversification. And then the last pillar with flexibility recognizes that we are going to go through chapters of our lives. We're going through seasons where we're going to change. We're going to change what we need, what we want, our priorities will shift, and You can and should rebalance your life to reflect that rather than say, well, this is what I always said I wanted. Okay, but do you still want it? Are you in a place where those priorities still align or do you want to shake them up a little bit? It's not being flaky, it's growing and acknowledging the change that's going on inside of you as much as planning for the change that's going on outside of you.
0: Yeah, there's a couple things that I think about whenever I hear you talk about some of these things. And I mean, this is basically the roadmap of my life. So I've lived all of this myself. (laughs) So I I can truly relate with the things that you're saying. But I think about questions people have asked me, you know, like, how do you have the courage to go after the thing that you want? how, How do you have the courage to say, well, now I'm a math person, or now I'm a runner? How do you have the courage to pivot and go against what maybe somebody's expectations were of you? Like an example is, you have your master's degree in electrical engineering and you're trying to be a pro mountain biker, like that's never going to work. And you have this like career that you could go after, but you're, you're doing this, this weird hobby thing that you hope works out. Like there's expectations and judgment from others. So I guess the mm-hmm. first question is how do you find the courage? And the second mm-hmm. question is how do you manage expectations of others? Yeah. I think
1: from courage point of view, I think one of the things, I mean, maybe related to both. One of the things that I was now I can say blessed with. I would not have said that as a kid growing up. My childhood, I didn't have a lot of friends. I was a little bit of a loner. I was in a very small community, a very kind of tightly knit religious community that I didn't really fit into. And as a result, I I literally didn't have friends until I was like 16. And then when I did start building friends, I was still a weirdo for a very long time. I mean, maybe I still am. And so as a result, the notion of appro- like getting people's approval of fitting in to an expectation has been lacking for my entire life like i that was never something that i could achieve so i didn't mm-hmm. even try to but i i look back at at you know some of the the people i work with and they say well you know i i do fit in i have followed the path i did the things that were expected of me i got the econ degree and then went to goldman sachs and now i have the mba and, and it turns out i don't want any of this and so it starts with deciding i think And and I would guess that you went through this exact same calculation. It starts with the deciding, well, do I want it enough to make a change, to take a risk, to maybe let people down in their expectations? Do I want it enough to try? Or am I willing to keep going on this path because the costs of trying and maybe failing seem so high and I'm willing to go to the end of my life not knowing if I could have done this? Right. Like it sounds a little bit dramatic to like bring up the end of your life, but I think that's a big part of this. Like you get one life. YOLO. (laughs) I'm reclaiming YOLO. Mm -hmm. You get one life. What do you want for it? Not what your parents want or your partner wants or your college friends want or your LinkedIn followers want. What do you want? And if you want to go be a pro mountain biker, go do it, man. If the whole thing fails, you still have that degree. You can always come back to and spin some story about a sabbatical. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: and you know, you've talked about shuffling your portfolio as Mm -hmm. things in your life change. We both have toddlers, Mm -hmm. so you know the way that you approach your work. It sounds like from other podcasts I listen to, you on, Mm -hmm. you know, you're traveling less. I'm traveling less. How do you? Shuffle that portfolio, but still stay fulfilled in your life because it can be really easy to look back at the things you were doing and say, wow, that was so exciting. That was so cool, or I used to be this person and be comparing mm-hmm. yourself to a previous version of yourself.
1: That's oh, so true. The previous version of myself is the comparison I I face the most. I don't like, I don't have a problem on Instagram of looking at my friend's lives. I'm like, that's awesome for you. Yeah. I have a problem looking back at my own Instagram and being like, oh, remember then? No, I think a, a big part of it is remembering that this is just a chapter. This is not the new normal. I think many of us, as we went through the pandemic, we always faced with like, is this a new normal? It's not a new normal that I am grounded from international travel with me, my passport and a backpack. It's not. It is this chapter while my kids are in diapers <laughs> and require 72 suitcases in order for us to go anywhere. <laughs> it is for now. This is the truth but this will end like there will be another chapter and i don't mean when i retire and my kids are out of the house i mean when they're old enough to stay with the grandparents for a week and i hop on a plane to japan at the last second right like it will happen again in the same way that i don't have time right now to make music in a formal way i i don't have time to sing in a choir i'm not part of an ensemble for literally the first time in my entire life since i started studying mm. music at age 4
0: and Sorry to interrupt. I I have to. I'm going to interrupt. Sorry. What's that like for you to not? Because that, I mean, the sound and being a part of something like that, you're like a collective, you're one voice in a collective. Like, how's that been going? (laughs) It is hard. I mean, I think singing,
1: choral singing for me has always been like as spiritual as like metaphysical as it has been creative, right? I mean, there are all these studies that say like your your heartbeat like syncs with all of the other people around you in this communal experience when you're singing. And I certainly miss that. I do feel that void. I don't want to discount that. The flip side is I'm looking for every possible opportunity to make music. One of the big upshots of moving to Boston after uh, 12 years in New York is I have a car, which means <laughs> I can sing in the car can't do that on the subway without getting a dirty look. So I sing all the time. And if it's my like three audition show tunes, that's what it is. If it's Elmo, I mean, for Pete's sake, it's Elmo. Miss Rachel's songs are very catchy, by the way. Uh, if you haven't discovered Miss Rachel, her husband is a Broadway or was a Broadway conductor and orchestrator. And so they are very catchy songs.
0: Hmm.
1: But I I know that it is a top priority for me mm-hmm. when I reemerge from this in a year or two, Mm -hmm. that I will be joining a choir again. And I know as I think through sort of triaging how I spend my time, I realized very early on into this parenthood uh, uh, journey that sleep and my health was the number one thing I had to prioritize. That in my former life... I could cut back on sleep. I could cut back on eating healthy and exercising and make space for all of these other things I wanted to achieve. And when it all added up and I was flat on my back for a week, eh, it's fine, you recover. I don't have that luxury now. With kids, I have to stay healthy. I say to this after a week of a stomach flu with my family. So I have to prioritize sleep and my health first. My work, second. And third is going to be all the fun things that I love, the book deals and the singing and the traveling and the best friends who live in other states. And I'm just constantly assessing when and how can I find small bits to bring that back? And when do I think this chapter might end and move into a place where I can bring them back in more meaningful ways?
0: Yeah, it sounds like the perspective taking and the big picture thinking is really key to all of this. Like you mentioned, the mental time travel of when you're on your deathbed what what are the things that you wish you would have done? What is the life that you wish you would have led? And then also whenever you're in quote chapter of something where maybe your life looks different than it used to, realizing that this chapter isn't going to be permanent. And then how can you make the most of it? You know, even if that means singing Elmo songs in the car, which I have to say in my bike races I love singing. Um, like out loud to myself while I'm racing, and some wow, of the, some of the songs have been children's songs, which I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was going through this tunnel, and it, like it was, it was like an actual tunnel, and there was people up in front of me and behind me, but they were out of the tunnel, and I just mm-hmm. started singing Fee, 5 Bo Fa, and then started laughing, and people probably thought I was out of my mind. So you can have, you can have fun, but I think people forget about the fun. They're like, I'm in it. Yeah. This isn't the way it used to be, and they they lose that that piece of it.
1: Yeah, well, and there's also the joy. I mean, I just took my kids to Scotland. Um, my brother in law lives there with his girlfriend, and it was our first big international trip with two kids. And I was, you know, of course, freaking out of, of like all the crap we have to bring with us, and how am I going to get them to adjust to the time zones, and and all of it. I had I had so many things I was worried about, and they were fantastic travelers. They they were pros. They like slept on the plane on the way there. I mean, the flight home was a disaster. I don't want to talk about it, but the flight there was great, and and they were excited and it was fun to see the world through their eyes. I mean, they're like three and one, they're not going to even remember it, but seeing them ask the questions and learn about a world that is very similar to ours and yet very different. It was fun and imagining how I'm going to instill in them the love of travel and the grittiness of like, throw it all in a backpack and let's see how many weeks we can go on the road, right? Like I get, I get that ahead of me, even if I have to slow down on my actual, you know, piece of that, uh, that exploration right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My, it's funny. My kids are one in three as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so something I, I wanted to ask you about, you said, you know what your priorities are. You're taking care of yourself is is of utmost priority because you can't do anything mm-hmm. else. Number two was work. And number three was all the other fun things. And when I'm envisioning a Venn diagram, A lot of people envision circles that are all the same size, but Mm. sometimes, you know, people's quote balance or ability to prioritize one circle is massive and it's usually the work circle Mm -hmm. and the self circle, maybe the fun circle are minuscule. So Mm -hmm. how can, how can people be aware that their work bubble is blowing up way too big and you can't even see the other little tiny bubbles in the, the Venn diagram? Yeah. For this, I like to think about a pie chart.
1: Because the nice thing about a pie chart is that it has to add up to 100%. There's no such thing as 110% in a pie chart. <laughs> mm-hmm. You only get as much pie as you have. So I imagine a pie chart. And for this, I literally did at one point a life audit where I went through my calendar. I live and die by my calendar. So if you can go and add up the time blocks and it'll tell you exactly how I spent my time. And I I literally I added it up over the course of a couple of weeks and I bucketed it into the different categories and I drew it out as a pie chart. And what I thought was really interesting was in that particular case, as this is before I had kids the first time I did it, the the percentages of of these buckets, my work, my primary job, and some of my other kind of commitments were far greater than I thought they would be. And they were far greater than what I said was my priority at that time. And so it, it was that first realization that what I said I want and how I was spending my time were not lining up. And then I had to think through, okay, is this by accident? Is this like just a default that I have been following an old pattern? Or am I actively choosing something that I say I don't want? And if I'm choosing it, is it because I don't actually want what I say I want? You know, There are many people that say like, I want to be a health nut. And you're like, yeah, but I see six Snickers wrappers on the floor of your car. Like, do you want to, or do you want to want to? (laughs) And in reality, that's not a priority for you. So, so is it that I don't want it or is it that I do want it, but I'm not disciplined enough to choose you know, where, where I'm going there. So there's a little bit of like a, a teasing out through the tree of, of what the root causes here to really get to the bottom of it. But once you figure that out, then there's the ability to say, okay, well, how do I want to spend my time now? Let's design from the bottom up. And I think about this, you know, a lot like, like Marie condoing your, your house, when you've got too much clutter, if you bring all like items together, that's the moment when you realize you have seventy-one thousand Tupperware bottoms and two lids, and you're like, it doesn't do me any good to have all the bottoms if I only have two lids. So we're going to clean them out. So bringing all the things together, why all of the one-off coffee chats that I was doing, I was like, oh, I'm giving away a lot of my time, and I'm not seeing any actual return on that. Like I never hear from these people again. I don't know if my advice was worthwhile. Maybe that's not how I want to be spending hours and hours of my time. At the the time I did this the first time, I was really miserable in my job, and I was taking on all of these extra things. I was doing a master's in computer science, and I was I joined the board of these two nonprofits, and I was singing in this choir, and I was traveling. I was doing all of these things, in large part because I hated my job <laughs> and i felt stupid and i wasn't loving it and i didn't feel like my best self and so i added a bunch of stuff where i could feel like myself rather than fix the situation where i didn't feel like myself and because i kept adding i was at the point of burnout which i think a lot of people are you're burning out because you're trying to to make up for it these are band-aids when in reality i needed to make a bigger shift of let's just change the day job. And then I realized that a lot of these extra things, I don't need to be doing right now because I'm fulfilled and I'm happy. So it's a long answer, but I think if you start with a pie chart and you can start to, to actually see the proportions of how much time you give work, how much time you give your family, how much time you give yourself. And you can say, you know, hopefully with some amount of honesty, like, I deserve a lot more time than I'm giving myself. So something's got to give. Which bucket am I going to take it from? Because it still has to add up to 100.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. I think that a lot of people might have had an epiphany when you were talking about adding more things on as a band-aid. And I think that a sense of agency is something that is underlying all of this. We talked about Mm -hmm. having the courage to maybe shift what you're doing having the courage to say, I say, I say that I want this thing, but maybe I don't, but I have the power to make these changes in my life, but Mm -hmm. I have to be the one that does that. Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, I think that's what many of us are, are feeling a loss for in, in a world that is changing this fast when we're constantly facing, whether it's technological disruption or ecological changes, or kind of all of the moving pieces of capitalism, there can feel like a loss of agency. and when you don't feel like you're in control of your life, you know, people react in different ways depending on your own makeup psychologically, but that lack of agency is going to make you seek it elsewhere and sometimes not in the most productive ways. So understanding the root cause and then choosing to address that rather than seek the band-aid is ultimately going, going to be the most sustainable, certainly, and I would argue the most fulfilling.
0: There's this book that I read and uh, I had the author on my podcast. It's called Subtract by Lydie Klotz. Have you heard of that mm, book? I've
1: heard of it. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I'm going to add it to my list now that you've brought up.
0: Yeah, it, it really it's a lot about what you were just talking about. It's like you're doing all these things in these coffee chats. Well, I'm going to start subtracting things out of my calendar instead of adding them in. And mm-hmm. that's not what our natural tendency is to do. And in the book, Lydie talks about how when somebody was making you know, a sculpture, they didn't Think what can I add to this chunk of rock? What can I take away from this chunk of rock to make it into a masterpiece? Mm-hmm. But saying no can be really scary because now you're miss, you're potentially missing out on opportunity. Mm-hmm. And people will just say yes because they think there's this scarcity that there's never going to be another opportunity like that. And I've I've fallen mm-hmm. into that category before. So thinking about saying no and actually saying no are hard. So, like, how do you prioritize subtraction? Like what to subtract? And and yeah. a follow-up question to that is this is kind of a personal question, but like, I love all of the different things in in there. There's nothing in there that's draining me, but there's just too many things because I love them all. So if you have so much Mm -hmm. passion and you want to do them all, but you can't, you have to cut something. Like, how do you know what Mm to cut?
1: Man, I live with that day in and day out. You're like, (laughs) I love all the things I'm choosing to do. And it's still too many things. (laughs) So, you know, you start with, and the things that you love, I think, go back to, again, this this notion of chapters or seasons, or I, as a professor, I still live on the academic calendar, which I think is always been uh, a model that my brain loves. This idea of like, well, what am I choosing for this semester? I get four classes, maybe five. What is the mix for this semester? A semester is four months long. You get three of them a year. As you are thinking through all the things you love to do, maybe... There's seasons of your year where you have biking and there's the off season. And during the off season, you can add in this other thing you wanted to try for the first time, but you're not going to do that when you're in the middle of your like intense racing period, or you might choose. I want to go in and, and, you know, have some travel that, uh, you know, people I haven't seen in a while. I want to go off and do these trips. Well, where do they, where do they fit in your year? And how can you intentionally design around those? You know, it's almost like putting together a Gantt chart. I mean, I know that's the nerdiest thing I could possibly say, but, but I literally do this. I plot it out. And how do these different commitments stack up? Because what you'll see, and certainly what I saw, is like not everything is all, all, on all the time. Sometimes it's like a week here, a weekend there, a week there. Sometimes it's 12 weeks and then it's off. Sometimes it's it's gonna be a weekly thing for an hour, but if you know your soccer team makes it to the club playoffs, then you've got three weeks at the end where it's gonna be all hands on deck. So so actually visualize what those commitments look like and how they stack. You can think of it as like Tetris, even. How can you stack them so they're not piled up so high they trigger, you know, the game to be over? How can they fit in a little bit better? I forgot your first question. Oh, saying no. So (laughs) saying no, one of the greatest gifts I've ever had from, uh, there's a network of women that I'm part of called The List, where it's mostly just like a Google listserv. It's all over email. But part of it is you get to basically overhear each other's advice to each other. So like you get this multi-generational learning curve. And one of the best pieces of advice I ever heard there was... No one really needs to know or certainly cares about your reason for no. Like, you don't have to go into the seven paragraphs about why you're saying no. You can simply say, that doesn't work for my schedule. Thank you so much for thinking of me. Send email. Like, send email, right? I don't have to defend it. And if someone gets mad about that, well, they were feeling entitled to your time. And like, maybe that's not someone who should be entitled to your time. Most people won't care. They'll say, okay, thanks. And at best, if you want to, you can always suggest someone else. That doesn't work for me. Here's a colleague that I think would be amazing. Very few times will you saying no turn into, and I'm never going to ask her ever again. Right? Most people fear that that's what that means, that scarcity mindset you brought up. But I think for many people, it's like you are top of mind. You said no. Okay, moving on. It's not like you've been stricken from my list um, that I'll never go back to. So I think if you say no repeatedly to the same uh, opportunities over and over again, you'll probably get taken off of the list at some point. But any individual no is not grounds for you know disaster. And I think if over time you say, well, this is not a priority for me right now. I have a friend who has been a public speaker for a big chunk of her career. And now she's moving away from that. She doesn't want to travel. She's thinking more about board seats. And so she has just said to her her contacts, like, I'm not really investing in speaking right now. Thank you for the opportunity. I will reach out if that changes. But for right now, you can take me off your list because that's not what I prioritize.
0: Yeah, something that you were describing earlier is what I call intentional imbalance people Mm -hmm. say, how do you balance all these different things that you're doing? And I say, well, I actually make a chart and I try and say, well, for this amount of time, I'm really focused on this is my top priority. And then I Mm -hmm. know it's going to shift and I'm going to be focused on something else for this part of the year. So having Mm -hmm. that intentional imbalance and like this is another theme I see coming out is like having advanced planning of how you're planning to spend your time instead of just reactively trying to do everything.
1: Oh god yeah advanced planning is the name of the game like i i map out my calendar 3 to 4 weeks in advance and and it's not rigid everything can move but i start from a place of how are all the pieces going to fit and i block everything everything from walks and lunches to meetings to big deliverables i block out working time so that when other people look at my calendar they don't see it as free they see a big open calendar and they think ah I could have some of that time. I'm like, no, that time is spoken for. Just because I'm in deep thinking and writing work doesn't mean that that's not work. So that that is taken. And my husband does this too. And we do our family commitments. We we map those out. We have visibility into each other's calendars. We invite each other to things, even if it's just an FYI. I'm working late. He'll get an invitation to that FYI. When we have babysitters, they get on the calendar and we clarify which of us is going to be running point for picking them up from daycare and getting them to the babysitter. Like we manage our family in the same way we manage our work, which is just there's a lot of moving pieces and they got to all have a place. And if they don't have a place on your calendar, that's when you know I've overcommitted. So it's a nice way to see beforehand where the crunch periods are going to happen, where the stressful moments are going to be. I, I had my husband was looking ahead uh, to, I think, October or November and said, oh, I was thinking of, you know, maybe popping down to New York and doing this quick little weekend thing. And I pulled up my calendar and I was like, I'm teaching three out of five days the week before, two days the week after, and I've got a big workshop on that Saturday. That's going to be really stressful if I'm solo parenting that weekend. He's like, great won't do it. Like, Thanks for that visibility. So having this all mapped out is really helpful. And then once it's there, everything can move around. You just know it has to have a place.
0: So something that you mentioned earlier was diversification. And you said that doesn't mean that you lack focus or commitment in something. And I think that the previous generation, like the baby boomers, they work the job, they work the same job for 40 years in the same company. And that's just not how it is anymore. But there's still like this lingering judgment around, well, this person does multiple things or, you know, they, they move around a lot. Therefore they are not reliable or they are not focused. So can you demystify that for us? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really hard mindset shift. The nice thing is, I think in
1: the last 10 years, we are seeing much more acceptance for this way of work, purely because of, you know, not that this is all about gig work. But I think the rise of the gig economy has made it clearer that there is there are a number of different models for how you can piece together work. And it doesn't all look like join a company, go up the ladder stay there 40 years. So we're seeing a lot more of that multiplicity of, of paths and as a result it makes any new path a little bit easier to accept. I think the the challenge around this diversification again is going to be the story you tell. And and so the struggle is if you're not going to go the typical path you can't use the typical tools to communicate your work, right? The resume, the LinkedIn, It works if you've had the obvious, I had this job and then I got promoted and then I switched companies, but I got promoted and then, right. And they're all in the same industry. They're all have the same function. If you don't do that, like me, that tool isn't going to help you. So you're going to have to be thoughtful about, well, how am I going to communicate my work? Whether that is a personal website, where I group together, hey, I am an author, a professor, a speaker, and an investor. And here on each of those different pages, here are all of my like work in that category. And let me then explain to you how those different things connect to make sort of the broader strategy for how I see my life. So it's going to require a different way of of kind of explaining that. And it also requires you to tell the story, to connect the dots for whoever you're talking to. If you've made a big shift because of a sabbatical, because you realized you wanted to go down a different path, you went from electrical engineering to pro mountain biking, right? You going to want to explain why. It wasn't just you woke up one morning and changed your mind about who you were. You probably went through a process to recognize, I want something different, and I want to take on a different challenge. So give them that story. But you can also show how the things you did before might connect to what you're doing now. And the more unexpected, the better, because then they're like, mind blown, you're bringing a completely different perspective here I hadn't thought about. So I often will point out how my theater major informed the work I did as a tech entrepreneur. And why now my experience as a tech investor makes me a really interesting Broadway investor, right? That connect the dots in in a diagonal way, and you might see something that other people don't. So it comes down to the work you have to do to make those connections. And hopefully the, the shifting acceptance that those linear careers literally don't exist, whether or not we want them, they don't exist anymore. So- even the last of the gen X and baby boomers are gonna have to get on board if they're continuing to work in the next 10 years.
0: Something that I've heard you say before is the the strength of associative thinking. And mm-hmm. that was so cool to hear because like I, I do so many different things and I notice that because of that, I have a perspective and I notice things in different areas that somebody who's very like someone who's doing a PhD on one topic might not. Notice some of these other things over here that's related. Mm-hmm. So can you talk more about associative thinking and, and its power?
1: Yeah. So it's one of the backbone pieces of work that Clay Christensen, who was one of my mentors at HTBS, he did research with colleagues on the innovators DNA. It was what were the traits, the characteristics of people who created things that were new? How did they come to their work and what was consistent? and across the five elements that they found the backbone of them was this associative thinking and that's the ability to take ideas concepts insights from one world and translate them into an un, a seemingly unconnected unrelated world and i love that permission to say a lot of creation a lot of innovation is not about invention it's not about something new necessarily it's about adapting something that exists elsewhere into a new world. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. I have been talking about my investing in Broadway. One of the frustrations I've had in my last few investments was the the analog kind of paperwork and the number of steps that we have to go through to fill out to be part of like the special purpose vehicle that they do to produce a show. And I got on a call with one of the producers and I said, you know, in tech, I have this platform called AngelList where any startup who wants to take a roll-up of small checks, of small investors, they say, well, this is smaller than I normally would take, but if all of you bundle your money together into a bigger check, I can take that. They go and they use this platform, and the platform does all of the paperwork. And you log in, you send them your check, and they take care of the tax paperwork, the updates, they manage all the investors. So the startup sees one investor, Angel List, and The investors have all of their information in one cohesive place. And the Broadway producer goes, huh, I had literally never even thought that that piece of our process was broken until this conversation because I've never worked anywhere else except in Broadway. And it's just the perfect example of like sometimes if you just know a better way elsewhere, you might find the opportunities by bringing that into a different context.
0: I think that's confidence building because I think a lot of people believe that they have these skill sets, but it's not unique or there really aren't. It really isn't very meaningful because everybody knows that because you know that. And that's actually Mm -hmm. something my husband has really helped me see is because I just make assumptions that because this is really apparent to me that everybody knows it, but that's not Mm -hmm. the case.
1: No, that's so true. I have often joked that I'm not I'm certainly not the best mathematician, but I'm often the best mathematician in a room full of artists. Mm -hmm. And I'm not the best artist. I'm not the best theater director by far, but I'm definitely the best theater director in a room full of mathematicians. (laughs) And so often what you bring that's different, it's the same as I took a a workshop called the Op-Ed Writers uh, Workshop, I think. And it was something about trying to get more women and people of color to write op-eds for newspapers. Most op-eds are written by white men and they wanted to shift that. They said often women and people of color, they're worried about saying, I'm not an expert. I don't want to write this because I'm not the expert. And they said, we define expertise as, do you know the most on this topic of the people in this room? So in this room, what are you the expert on? And they made us go around and say what we're the expert on. And that was just so empowering for me because I was like, you're right. I am not the world's expert on literally anything. But in a room full of mathematicians, I am the expert on how to stand on a stage, tell a great story that people are not going to fall asleep to, right? Like that, that is incredibly empowering.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what Matt said to me. He said, if you know more, a lot more than everybody else around you, then you are the expert in that room and and to be confident Mm -hmm. being the expert in that room. But I think we compare ourselves to the very best, you know, especially achieving types like, well, if I'm not number one, then I don't know anything number one, number one is busy.
1: (laughs) You just have to be the most useful. And I I think part of this is also a mindset shift to say, this isn't about you showing off what you know. This is about you helping the people around you, right? And if you can see that shift, you realize I don't need to be number one in this topic to add value to the other people in this room who might be able to learn something from my experience. So it's not about like an ego thing or about showing off your expertise it's literally about helping people out and i think that's true as well when you when you figure out like how to talk about who you are and what you do i know a lot of folks are like i don't want to brag i don't want to like no 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 this is not about bragging this is literally i am your friend and i want to help you but i don't understand what you do i don't get it there are too many moving pieces i don't i don't know how to talk about it i need you to give me the language so that when I'm in the room with someone that I think you should meet, I know how to describe you properly and can make that introduction happen. You're helping me. You're not bragging.
0: Yeah, there's this sports psychologist that I really enjoy. He has a podcast called Finding Mastery and his name's Michael Gervais. Mm-hmm. And a really big thing for him is about what is your philosophy? What is your personal philosophy? And that was helpful for me because that personal philosophy is what anchors all the other things that I do. So I realized Oh, my personal one of my one of my philosophies, especially in my work, is I like to explore the intersection of high performance and well-being. And then from everything else, like all the things that I do kind of fall underneath that umbrella. So for those listening, you know, if you're like, well, I do lots of things, still, I I don't want to pick just one of the jobs that I do. Like, what's a theme? Like, what's a general theme that you are interested in exploring? And then people can want to know more from that. That's exactly it. And and I think this is true as you're trying to
1: figure out like, where do I play? And also, what do you do? Right? You can find the through line of I'm a storyteller. I'm a connector. I'm an investigator. I'm someone who challenges the status quo. Right? You can think through from a thematic perspective there as much as thinking through as I do, I care about the intersection of business technology and the arts. And that means everything from what is the business of creativity to what is the creativity of business, right? Like how do these things play together and inform each other? So I love that idea of like, find the thematic connection because you, you are the connection of all the things you do. You are that connection. So why are you attracted to these different things? What is consistent from one thing to another that makes it possible for you to be able to to do it to be interested in doing it if there's a through line for you there is a
0: through line you just got to find it something else that I wanted to ask you about was the idea of capacity because mm. it seems like you know not everybody has the same capacity to handle a lot of different things and you have a very high capacity I know that I have a very high capacity and I just assume that everybody else does as well, but that's not the case. So how can somebody, number one, like kind of realize what their capacity is? And then do you think that that capacity is something that can be adapted and grown?
1: Absolutely. And it can also shrink, right? Again, we go back to seasons. Right. I look (laughs) at the capacity that I had before I had children, and I am astonished with how much time I had. And I see this again in these little moments where I might have like a day uh, where I'm traveling for work and I wake up in the morning and I realize I can now get from bed out the door in about seven minutes, because that is literally how much time I get to myself in the hour that I currently spend getting my kids up and dressed and out the door. I'm like, oh, I used to have an hour for me and I figured out how to bring it down to seven minutes. So um So you realize that people have different capacities at different stages of life, depending on their resources, depending on their commitments and the other things that the people that might rely on them. And, you know, if you have, I say this in the book, if you've got a housekeeper, you've got more capacity than someone who has to clean their own house. If you're taking care of your parents, you have less capacity than someone who doesn't have you know, parental or elder care responsibilities. If you have a two-hour commute each way, you've just eaten up part of your capacity in that transportation. That's why so many people are frustrated by this, like, pressure to return to work, where you're like, you're literally stealing capacity from me. In in favor of what? You know? So, so there's part of it is the acknowledgement that not everyone has the same 24 hours that Beyonce does. We just don't. And you are gonna have different capacities for different seasons of your life. So right now, I have a much more limited capacity than I used to, and I know it's not forever. But part of ensuring I don't burn out is to be realistic about how much time I do have. And that means literally going back to the time audit, looking at how many hours do I have available to be allocated? And that doesn't mean 24 hours. My sleep, non-negotiable. The time I spend picking my kids up, going bedtime, uh, dinner, bath time, all of that, non-negotiable. Every once in a while, we'll have a babysitter or I'll travel for work and I'm I'm trading that time in. But that is on an average day, not available. So I realize out of my 24 hours, I have closer to uh, maybe 12 total hours available. And that's not just for work. That's for work for friends, for exercise, for commuting, for showering, <laughs> for, right? And like, that's out of seven days, 12 hours, that's 84 hours. That means I can't have a job that expects me to work 70 to 80 hours a week. I just can't. It's not possible given my current capacity. And that was part of my realization. When I decided to become a professor for the stage of life where I have young kids, I was working 80 hours a week in startups before I had kids. And I was like, I can't be the type of parent I want to be and be the type of human I want to be and also be an early stage entrepreneur for this season. So I'm choosing a different primary commitment because now my work is 40 hours a week, maybe 35 in the summer. And then it's it's literally slotting everything about else back in and the acknowledgement that I cannot allocate a full 100% of those hours. That's not realistic for the way life works. I need downtime. I need buffers for things to go wrong. I need the ability to say yes serendipitously to something amazing and not feel like I lost out on it. To do that, I cannot schedule, allocate more than 85% of those hours. And that includes, and I say this uh, like 50 times because no one ever quite gets it the first 49, that includes the time that you're allocating to yourself. That includes the naps and the baths and the yoga and the whatever else you need. 85% including the time for yourself. And the buffer is on top of that.
0: Yeah. And I think a challenge with that is you have that 85%, but then people don't hold the boundaries around that time. And the first thing that to go is, well, I got behind on this, so I'm going to skip this yoga thing, or I'm going to skip this, this thing that takes care of me.
1: Yeah. And that's why everything like that, it goes on my calendar and it has the same weight of line and coloring in as every other block, right? It, it has significance because it's earned a spot on my calendar. And I say, I can move it, but I can't delete it unless I'm really in crisis mode. And I do have those weeks. I do have crisis mode weeks where everything that has to get stripped out gets stripped out. But that is the exception. It's not the first place I go to when I'm looking for extra time. And yeah. look, this is my like this is my my true north, my like perfect version of the world. This is the piece of the whole model that I still struggle with. I'm not going to pretend that I have it down pat. Um it is hard. It is hard because it is deprogramming how high achievers have been trained yep it's hard it's going against everything we've been taught which is like put yourself last and get everything done and do it to a hundred percent effort and like there is no room for for good enough and you'll still never
0: feel like you're enough no matter what and you're yeah you'll you'll (laughs) never be enough no matter what no
1: like getting getting comfortable with good enough has been one of my best hacks as a parent
0: Mm. yeah yeah parenting is such a good um like rapid tests and and flexibility and acceptance <laughs> and all the things that you're mentioning, they all sound great, but the, and the emotional side of it is very challenging to say, yeah. okay, I can't do as many things as I was doing before. This is something I talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I can't train the same number of hours I was training before. So I have to shift my expectations of what those outcomes or potential outcomes might yeah. be. And I have to accept and be okay with that. And that is yeah. very challenging sometimes we were used to doing your 80 hours a week and now knowing, well, I can't put in the same time, so therefore I can't expect to get the same thing out.
1: It's it's absolutely true. And I think it forces you to be ruthless in what you do put in, mm-hmm. right? If I only get 40 and not 80 hours, I'm not saying yes to half the crap that I used to be like, okay, well, sure. You're like, no, if this doesn't, this is where having a real clarity on, well, what is the point? What is my goal? And when something pops up and say, can you? And I'm like, it doesn't get me toward the goal. And the goal doesn't have to be my own personal outcome. Part of my goals might be being a great collaborator with my colleagues. Then if someone says, can you do this thing? And it doesn't further my goal, but it does help them and it builds my relationship, I'll still say yes. But when someone says, well, you do this random thing that in no way contributes to any of my goals, and it's it's a very easy, that doesn't work for my schedule at this time. Thank you for thinking of me. Mm-hmm. Send.
0: Yeah, sometimes that initial um, growth part and the, the change, like that's, that's going to be painful. And yeah. my friend, she's an act psychologist, she says that sometimes living by your values is actually a painful thing at first because you have mm-hmm. to start drawing these boundaries.
1: It does. But the, the easiest part about this is if you have friends or a partner or colleagues that can do it with you and you can hold each other accountable you can bounce that you're like, ah, I don't want to say yes to this, but I feel like I have to. And my partner's like, but why do you have to like, walk me through the half to part. Mm-hmm. And as I'm explaining this, he's like, doesn't sound like have to. sounds like you just don't want to say no. And I'm like, ah, okay. Okay. I'm going to say no. <laughs> he's like, like,
0: did you send the email? Did you say no? Good. <laughs> that's like the next book saying no. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Well, Unfortunately, we're already out of time. I could chat with you all day about this stuff because there's just uh, I I feel like there's a lot of shared energy here around these topics.
1: (laughs) I want to know. I mean, we have so many uh, similar uh, crazy adventures that we've gone on. I want to know what's your favorite place that you've ever traveled to? Uh, We
0: were talking about this before we hit record. It's it's Nepal for a number of reasons. Like it was the first place that I went that really kind of shook me to the core and changed my perspective Mm -hmm. on life. And the race that I did there, like no woman had ever done it before. And it was me really having to be courageous and overcome really big challenges. And that event made me believe that I was more capable than I ever thought I was. So it it basically oh opened up an entire world for me by going to that race. And that was in 2012. So that's amazing. How, how about you? I love that.
1: Ah uh, I am torn, I think probably Costa Rica simply because uh, Costa Rica and Panama and Nicaragua was sort of my second big solo trip. I, I tend to go to like uh, clusters of countries because I want to see and compare and contrast over borders. And I went to Costa Rica um, by myself. I had a month before I was starting business school. I had zero plans. I had a backpack and a lonely planet. And over the course of that month, I ended up making so many friends. And at the last, the tail end of that trip, I did something that was completely out of character for me, and that was to say yes to a hairbrained "Do you want to go to Panama with me?" The bus leaves in twenty minutes <laughs> from someone I had literally met the night before at my hostel hotel, and she was super cool. She was so much cooler than I was. She's like, "Do you want to go?" Uh, and I was like, "I'm supposed to go home to New York in like six days. Like, how are we getting back from and like all these reasons to say no were th- going through my head, and instead I said yes. And I ran back to the hostel. I got my backpack. I was like, peace out. They're like, you already paid for tonight. And I was like, it's all good. And I ran and got on the bus. And we made friends with like three other solo travelers. By the time we made it across the border to Panama, we ended up getting a house together. And we hung out for the next four days. It was the most fun I've had probably of all of my solo travels. And it all came from saying yes to something that on the surface was against all of my Like, that's not reasonable, rational, strategic, all of those things. And I have found that 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 willingness to be open to things outside of your plans has been fundamental to who I've become as an entrepreneur, certainly now as a parent and as a creative, that like you can't imagine all of the great things that might happen. So you have to be open to stuff that are not in your plans. That it was the beginning of shaking me out of my some of the rigidity that I had grown up in,
0: yeah. And I'm doing my master's in applied positive psychology starting in September. Um, so another oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> at, at, at University of Pennsylvania. Congratulations, um, thanks. So, there's been a lot of studying I've done on my own over the last decade because I love this stuff, and one of the mm-hmm. things is that openness actually creates more positive emotions and positivity in your life. And mm. I thought that that was really interesting because you always hear, well, just be optimistic or be positive, but really like being open is a precursor mm. to that. And it sounds like that really kind of helped you a lot in that situation. And that also you mentioned, you know, it was hard to make friends and in this like up until age 16. And then in mm-hmm. this situation, you had all these friends that you were making. Yeah. I mean, it it
1: changed. It truly did rewrite some of that narrative because I, for most of my life was like, I'm a weirdo. No one likes me. Nothing, you know, everything's wrong with me. And then I realized like, no, I was just in a tiny, tiny little Petri dish and there just weren't enough people that were not normal that I could be friends with and put out in the real world. It turns out I'm a very friendly person. So you got to find your um, own brand of weird. (laughs) Exactly. Weird is great. Find (laughs) the weirdos that like your weird.
0: Yes. (laughs) That's a good way to wrap it up. Where can people find your book and find more information about you? Book is anywhere books are sold. Uh, you can head to
1: PortfolioLife.com and there are links to a bunch of different online retailers. Um, or you can go to your library. Big fan of libraries. Go ask for it there. And you could follow me on LinkedIn or head to ChristinaWallace.com and sign up for my mailing list. I think I send like two things a year. So it's very inbox friendly.
0: <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing all of this great insight with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's been a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed that episode with christina wallace make sure that you pick up her book the venn diagram method for your life is something that we should think about more and this power of associative thinking and to saying yes and also just hearing other people's stories of how they have made their way in the world to inspire us to be even more creative with the things that we are doing Thank you so much for listening. There are literally millions of podcasts out there, and I am so grateful that you are over here in this tiny little spot that I've carved out in the internet about high performance and well being. And with that, I am with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. I'll see you right back here next week.